Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Live Race Free podcast. There is a real link between institutional policies and racism. Terms like structural racism, institutional racism, and white supremacy support the idea of a setup by racist whites bent on keeping themselves in power. It's partly true and also deeply false. The true part, policies were put in place, their effects create poverty, a high death rate for blacks, and little to no academic or financial advancement over multiple generations. The perpetuation of these policies has indeed created a cycle that is nearly impossible to break. The false part, that these policies were put in place by racist whites, false. They were put in place by blacks and whites. This is a social strategy which is impoverishing a particular demographic through policies such as welfare, grouping people together, particularly multiple groups at a time, to amp up the common grievance. Hence, the Democratic Party platform of grouping Blacks and minority groups, LGBT, all into one group. Another false part, to maintain that these policies were put into place to maintain a power structure. False. Black skull, I'm sorry, Black culture has largely upheld habits, attitudes, and sayings that tend to lead to the dismal social and economic results we know well. These cultural norms were not always that way, and there seems to be evidence pointing again to the advent of welfare programs, minimum wage laws, and legislation against school choice, for a few examples, as possible causal factors for these cultural changes. Another false point, that the disparate results are real proof of the system. False. Disparate results are proof of differences in values, ideals, and personal results. Disparate results exist in income numbers within the Black community and is also normative in income and education numbers within other racial groups as well. The fact that the narrative assumes that a gap between groups indicates racism is a logical fallacy we too often fall for. Another false point, that acknowledging that this fully intact racially oppressive system aided and embedded by both the overtly racist and the incidentally ignorantly covertly racist beneficiaries known as whites is the solution to overcoming it. False. The demand to acknowledge this as true assumes it's all true. But I've demonstrated just a few examples where they're false. Wouldn't it be better to examine where this narrative comes from and the facts that it ignores and look at why those facts are ignored and if it actually changes the narrative? That will lead to the right solutions, healthy relationships, and a healthier national dialogue about our nation's past, present, and future. It'll give kids, families, and policymakers a perspective of hope that's not punitive and that doesn't damage relationships going forward. Here's a personal story. I have a friend living on welfare. She has an unfortunately predictable story. Four kids, four different dads, low-income job, living off the benefits of welfare for her housing, her kids' education, groceries, transportation, medical care, everything. I used to think that without a program like this, how would she survive? She liked to talk about the plans and dreams that she had for buying a house, getting married one day, starting a cleaning business. So one day while she was over at my house, I asked her when she was going to get off welfare. And she said she planned to when her youngest turned 18. 
In other words, when her income would decline anyway. I realized that she had a big problem. Welfare had become the enemy of her dreams. She was actually a second generation welfare recipient and even had an aunt that had gotten off welfare. She had become a nurse and was living a good life, but my friend couldn't muster up the courage to do it herself. If she wanted to start a business or buy a house, she'd have to start putting money aside. Welfare does not allow you to collect the benefits and have savings over a certain amount. If she wanted to live in a nicer house, she'd have to either settle for what the government said they'd pay for or save up for a down payment and say goodbye to her checks. Essentially, her dreams didn't matter. If she wanted to start a business, she'd have to save up more than the $3,000 the program would allow, causing her to lose her benefits, as she'd say. She basically had to choose between saving for her future or living off the government. She was stuck. All of a sudden, this benefit program looked more like a trap. Whatever the motivation, its results were awful. After growing up on it in almost 20 years as a recipient herself, she had been essentially paid not to save, not to get married, not to build a home and a legacy, not to make an, an effort to advance at work, not to dream and hope for more. With a program like this, the question wasn't how else could she survive, but how can I expect her to get out to even have a hope of, of thriving, let alone surviving? The problem I notice with citing racism as the problem is that many of the folks who promote and support and stand behind these programs are not white. They're black. They're in positions of power, authority, and clout. They live completely different lifestyles from the lives my friend and others on welfare. And they know the results, yet they continue to blame racism. Most of the government programs that were designed to help blacks, but instead have this negative impact, were started by Democrats. The Republicans who supported them were left-leaning in ideology. So, for example, today, I looked it up, uh, the 116th Congress of the United States, there are 57 Black Americans serving in our current Congress. 53 of them are Democrats. And that's been the pattern over the last 50 years, ever since the Civil Rights era. Mind you, the first the first people in Congress, the first Black Americans in Congress were Republicans, and there's very good reasons for that. Um, but this picture, this picture wasn't supporting the race narrative that seemed to make so much sense. You know, when you listen to the race narrative, it seems like everything makes sense, there's so much racism, it's keeping people back. But when you look at these, these what we like to call institutional racism, you look at the actual institutions, and they're not started by mostly racist whites. They're not, they're started by a lot of Black folks. I'm not trying to put the blame on blacks and saying that, you know, we're self-hating or anything like that, but it does make you, it does raise a question. You know, how can we say that it's all about racism when blacks are involved in, in getting these things started? In his book, Liberalism, Burgess Owens outlines and demonstrates how particular liberal ideology pushed through Democratic Party policy have systematically broken the values of black families, resulting in the tragic, chaotic, impoverished lives that we see today. Being raised in the 50s and 60s Deep South, Burgess Owens experienced firsthand the transformation of the Black family with the advent of policies like these. Here's an excerpt from his examination of federal housing and welfare. Legislation slash policies that began in the mid-1960s gave young and old mothers a dis disincentive to be self-sufficient. 
policies introduced a welfare mindset into black urban families to rely on federal government largesse instead of the traditional family unit that has served the black community well throughout the early 1900s. The role of the black male was redefined from that of providing, securing, and protecting his wife and children to that of a baby producing freeloader. Introduced in mid-1960s with free housing and weekly cash payments to mothers who remained pregnant and single, these welfare programs rapidly led to implosion of the Black family unit. In a 1965 report known as the Moynihan Report, Democratic Senator Patrick Moynihan warned of the dire consequence in coming years of the exponential growth of Black families headed by government-dependent single mothers. The ideology of liberalism attacked this report viciously as racist, as racist in and insulting to Black single mothers. Results have seen decades of intergenerational welfare families with children as young as 14 and 15 having babies. Generations of mothers who strategically remain pregnant, single, and increasingly dependent on government checks with fathers, quote-unquote, increasingly providing irresponsible, low-life role modeling. With the community's acceptance of their babies as a commodity for securing a free lifestyle via federal checks came an acceptance of the devaluations of life and increase in abortions. Planned Parenthood has accommodated this devaluation of Black lives by establishing a majority of their laboratories in urban Black neighborhoods. A new research released by Protecting Black Life, which is an outreach of Life Issues Institute, reveals that 79% of Planned Parenthood surgical abortion facilities are located within walking distance of African-American and or Hispanic Latino communities. The message to young Black boys? Simply hit and run. Result, 73% of Black babies are born out of wedlock to single mothers who are convinced that marriage and the support of a committed husband should not be expected. Anti-Black policy supported by labor unions and 100% by Democrats. If you take a closer look at the claim that systemic racism is to blame for police brutality and the numerous ills faced by the black community, you realize that you can't honestly place the blame squarely on racism. The racism or lingering racism that was prevalent during the Jim Crow era simply does not line up with the actual issues holding back Blacks today. Is there still racism in America? Yes. But true racists are actually few and far between. No one wants to be associated with a racist. Amy Cooper's firing is a case in point. What we all call racism today, Owens might simply shrug off as minor enough to not let it get in his way. And honestly, that's a much stronger mentality, attitude, and response to pass on to the next generation rather than an oppressive racist narrative that is impossible to overcome because it lies in the hands of others and not in your own choices. The ideological separation of people into groups is not a result of racism, but a hallmark of Marxism and all its babies. Socialism or statism, for example, i.e. the state should be responsible for everyone having the same equal outcome regardless of effort or feminism, i.e. reproductive rights, quote-unquote, or killing your own baby, is foundational to gaining equality with men and to have a chance at economic decisions about your future. 
or humanism, i.e., we humans are able to outwit the deficits of human nature through creatively reinventing social, political, civic, and even religious structures. I hope you can see how each of these ideas has their hands in the race narrative. Um, I want it to cause you to question what we're so easily fed through the media, entertainment, politics, and, and even churches. I want you to ask yourself if, compared to the idea of systemic racism, if these ideals within liberalism could actually explain how we've gotten to where we are. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Live Race Free podcast. I hope that you were inspired to think a little differently about the topics we've discussed to engage and share your thoughts. For more content on this topic, visit our website at liveracefree.com, where you can find resources to learn more, books about by the authors I mentioned, and access the Live Race Free playlist on YouTube. Make sure you don't miss an episode by putting in your email address at liveracefree.com. Till next time, this is Deladam Ruer with Live Race Free. Thank you.